0: I'm going to take a big risk here because whenever you ask someone to throw out a number, you risk them throwing out a number that's too big, and then it ruins the moment. But I'm, I'm going to take that risk.
1: Mason, mm-hmm.
0: how many listens do you think we have so
1: far? Like total listens or like yeah. average? Because I've heard some – Total numbers. listens. Total – okay. I don't remember the total listens last time I I checked. How many – okay, I'm just going to do some quick numbers in my head. Episodes, Um, I'm gonna say around a couple thousand, maybe a little less. 2,500! 2,500!
2: Out of all the episodes? 2,500! 2,500!
0: That's not too stinking shabby. I mean, I don't know what number I was expecting to see, but I saw that, I was like,
2: who are you people? (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you. Our extended verbal hands go up to you. Also, 100 confirmed subscribers. Nice
0: round number. Whoop, whoop. Hun- Do we of get a numbers. plaque? Dude, we could reform the church. We've oh, got gosh. our own church. Like, <laughs> come on. Come <laughs> on. Everyone that's listening, t- grab your torches. Let's go.
2: <laughs> and those listeners in Australia, get on a plane and come over to the U.S. Yeah. Like that. We got Twinkies, bro. Yeah. And I I say that. Just don't bring the Vegemite. Oh, no. you Leave that there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's no, I say that not like in a bragging sense. I mean, I know that probably yeah. sounds like just a straight up brag. But again, like I don't. When I look at those numbers, it's not that they don't mean anything to me, but I don't. It's dangerous to get into that mindset of like, "Oh, we we need subscribers. Oh, we need listens." I mean, like David in the census. Like I don't need exactly. I don't. I don't need that validation because yeah. I'm here to study God's word. And if people want to listen to it, that's awesome. And like that, that's awesome. Getting to see those numbers and be like, "Okay, there's something to this." Like, we're, either we are being heretical. To fellow heretics, and, 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 they are, and they are all about our level of heresy, or we're doing something right.
2: And well, that, that, this is a it's, it's a weird community without ha- it's it's a, it's a weird community that like obviously we don't know who who in the world the listeners are, but yet they know who we are. I mean, this is probably the most candid and open that we are probably ever going to be when it comes to scripture. I mean, there's stuff that me and Mason are going to say here that we probably wouldn't say behind the pulpit. Exactly. So, the, the thing is, though, is that this is a way to bridge a community without really... It's a different dynamic, per se, mm-hmm. uh, of a community. But! But! In case you haven't figured out, you're listening to Cross Training.
0: Woo! Greatest podcast in the world in which we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. Through a biblical lens! And we're getting these numbers... With no advertising budget. Man, imagine so, if we threw some dollars at a billboard. We'd be the Joe Rogan of theological podcasts. <laughs> I don't know about that much. Oh, no, I got faith. I got faith. But uh, I'm Matthew Thompson. I'm Tanner Higgins. And I'm Mason Simmons. And what are we, we going to talk about today? Because I dropped a little little teaser at the end of, uh, I was about to say last week's, two weeks ago's episode. Lat- Is a
2: Fortnite two weeks?
0: Fortnite's two weeks, right? I don't know. A, a what? A A Fortnite?
1: that's a game no Tanner it's also a word (laughs) if he's sitting inside Jeff I believe with that eye roll he might have smacked (laughs) you well
2: (laughs) well Well, I'm going to I'm going to take your word for it but we're going to look I mean hey
0: oh great now when you look up Fortnite on Google it's all just a game (laughs) (laughs) a period of two weeks okay so last Fortnite (laughs) is that what we're going to be saying now Uh, Last fortnight, I said... Oh, gosh. We're going to gain a lister of eight-year-olds. I'm I'm up for it. it. Let's indoctrinate some children. Oh, gosh. All right, continue. So we're going to change the way that you read the Bible. Now, I am prone to hyperbole. I will be the first to admit that. So maybe I'm not going to change the way that you read the Bible. Maybe we're not going to change the way that you look at at Scripture and be like, well, ain't that something? But we're going to talk about... What that book is that you're reading when you pick up Scripture? Why is that book the Bible? What made it the Bible? How, how did it get it into your hands? How did it get translated into the language that you choose? And how should you be paying your respects towards it? Basically, what the heck is a Bible? For real, what even is a Bible? And that is the subject of today's discussion. Bada bing, bada boom. So, first things first, the Bible has this really cool way of referencing itself. It does it constantly. It's a v- pretty masterfully written piece of literature, especially considering it's got so many stinking authors mm-hmm. uh, across such uh, a large time period. So, Tanner, I believe you did the bulk of our uh, combined research in terms of the Bible while it was being written. So is there, is there any way you'd like to kick off discussion about the Bible yeah. during the Bible times?
2: For sure. Well, let's, just, let's first, first start off with like, the nature of God and how He talks with people. Okay, so I mean, so there's two ways that in the biblical uh, theological realm that God communicates with his creation, especially to mankind, which he throughout the gospel that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself incarnate, came and died for our sins and rose again on the third day and is coming back again. So there's two things that I want to make mention here is that there's a general revelation basically stating that God does not keep himself from humanity, that he reveals himself to everyone through his creation, through observation, through nature, through the natural world. So that's a general revelation. So this is basically us Americans that have the privilege to have all these things and the knowledge at ready is also seeing god's general revelation as much as the person in new guinea that will probably never hear or read scripture in the in the in the context of a bible now that's the general that's a general revelation that everyone sees that so the next one is a special revelation and this is where we're going to kind of focus our hone our topic today is that the special revelation is god then spoke to and through people to reach all of us through the New and the Old Testament. So the special revelation is basically a a mi- microscope from the general revelation to a more honed-in detective work of, like, what is God saying to us if, now that we know that there is a God. And so this is where Scripture, the Holy Bible, the thing that you see that is the number one bestseller book in the world still— and that's one thing, if you look in the, the 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 book selling things, it's never on there because it's always going to top the charts every time. So...
0: Is this the part where I jump in and say that uh, it did get dethroned for a couple weeks when Fifty Shades of Grey took off?
2: Oh, no. We are not going to talk about that.
0: <laughs> Is that going to make the final cut? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, future Matthew, leave that in.
2: <laughs> so here, here's the thing when it comes... I'm going to talk a little bit about the Old Testament, and Matthew, you can pepper your stuff in here too, but like... When we think of, of of the Bible, we think of it as like, a. A lot of times, you think it's just one big massive work. Okay, so. The thing is with Scripture, and I think it's awesome, is that the message itself is the same in through Genesis through Revelation, that that there is a coming Messiah that is coming to redeem creation and to save us from ourselves, basically. And that's the whole theme from Genesis to Revelation, that Christ is King, Christ is coming to redeem us. So the message is the same, but the way that that message is presented is kind of like you go to a dance but you put on different suits every time you go to a diff- that, that same dance every year. Or you go to church and you wear a different suit or a different tie or different clothes, but yet it's still doing the same thing. So the way that the Old Testament, kind of the way that it's kind of presented, is that there's different writers. And so there's an inspiration that God used special people to write these books, these 66 books of the Bible. And so the Old Testament, it begins with Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Tanakh and it's it's basically the law. The Tanakh means the law, Ooh, of well, scripture. That's
0: Torah which is the T in Tanakh, correct? Tanakh's the full Old Testament.
2: Correct. Correct. Yes, yes. So Tanakh is uh, is the the whole testament. You're exactly right. I'm sorry. Okay. Torah, right. it both starts with a T. Sorry. The Tanakh is the Old Testament as a whole. The Torah is the five laws that Moses wrote, the five law books.
0: Because Torah means
2: law. Yes. So uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the five first books of the Bible. And then you have what you call, I'm going to butcher these Hebrew words, but it's called the Nehavim, which are the prophets. And you have former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And you have latter prophets, later prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 other prophets. Prophets, I'm not going to name them all. And then you have other writings within that. You have poetry within Psalms. Which,
0: and, that's the K, Ketuvim,
2: correct? Yes, Ketuvim. And, I'm like I said... Keep you on your toes, yeah. Tanner. We both studied the same thing. So, yeah. just, so you've got poetry, you've got Psalms and Proverbs. Then you have what they call the Megalith, which is the five roles. Which, I mean, you have the Song of Solomon, Ruth, and Lamentations, Esther. And then Ecclesiastes, which Ecclesiastes is a sub-genre of that is actually some satire. So, I mean, there's actually satire in the Bible. And then you have historical books such as Daniel, Ezra through Nehemiah, and the Chronicles and stuff like that. So you have different literary genres within, especially the Old Testament. And the message is the same. And so here you have throughout, I think, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if the timeline was, but Abraham is probably the first, one of the earliest recordings of an individual that you have talking about historically. And that's around 4500 B.C., So you've got 4,500 B.C. to the last prophet, which is probably 400 years before Christ, correct? Yeah, if we're not counting John the Baptist, yeah. Yeah, if you're not counting John the Baptist.
1: And uh, Mason. It's fun fact time.
2: Fun fact, Mason. Yeah, okay.
1: So uh, Tanner brought up there was a 400-year gap of the last prophet before Jesus or John the Baptist, whichever one you call the same. I think they were only born a couple months apart, if that. So... Um, Anyway, I'm going to give you time. Everybody, grab your Bibles. We're going to do this like Sunday school. And anyway, (laughs) no, but I do want people to see this because if I want to, it's in every Bible I have ever checked. In your Bibles, like like seriously, if you have it with you, if you're driving, don't do that. But if you're at home or anywhere else, you can have a Bible. Go to the very first of the New Testament. So John, or not John? Wow, we have done John last season, and that has messed (laughs) me. Matthew chapter one. And the page right before Matthew chapter 1 should be blank. It has been in every Bible I have ever checked, because ever since I learned this, probably probably almost 10 years ago now, 10, 8 years ago, I have I have checked just about every Bible I can pick up just to see, and I have not found one that doesn't have it. That blank page. That blank page actually does have a meaning, and that meaning is uh, that that blank page where there are no words is supposed to represent that 400 gap, four hundred year gap where God did not speak to humanity in any form or way before Christ showed up. Mm-hmm. Before, or I should say John the Baptist because he used John the Baptist before Christ came. So well, that means they couldn't have been born a couple months apart unless it was just before the mystery. Anyway, I don't want to try to get my timelines They up. were both in the womb at
2: the same time. Yeah. But one came yeah, before so John came before
1: Christ. But between. We'll say John the Baptist because he used him before Christ started his ministry. Before John the Baptist, and in between him and the last prophet, like I said, I don't remember exactly who. um, It's been a long time since I studied the prophets. That 400-year gap is what that blank page is supposed to represent. So
2: when it comes to that, I always thought it was like a bookmark. It's saying separating my Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah, most people do think that.
1: But um, I learned learned that in a Sunday school uh, lesson probably when I was about 10 or 12. And I just thought that— blew my mind and I, th- I think I told that to Matthew was it in one of the episodes we recorded last season
0: I think it was after we stopped recording and I just it, it completely wrecked my mind because it's one of those things that like when you hear it just your first reaction is no
2: way I wanted to call the no boy way. I, I kind of wanted to be like bull crap but I mean yeah, cause cause I I told, like, why have I not been told that
1: before yeah, I told mind. Tanner this right before we started uh, recording today and he just kind of looked at me like I was stupid and then Matthew just kind of like pokes his head around the mic like it's true it's true nah true no but, uh, research
0: i'd like to i'd like to hit the brakes just a bit and rewind uh back to to talk yep. because the, again this episode we want to give the bible the respect that is due we want to talk about the history we want mm. to talk about the bible as a book because it's so easy to just treat the bible like it like it's just a book yeah. because especially if you grow up in church, like you're, you're always around Bibles. It's super easy to just look at and be like, Oh yeah, that's that thing that i that I read when I'm feeling extra guilty about not praying for three days in a row like that. <laughs> the Bible's got some stinking value to it. So I, I want to make sure that we dig deep into things that the average Christian might not, might not know about the Bible, like the Tanakh order. That's something that I learned, I'd say about two or three years ago. And it gave me a lot of, uh, Newfound inspiration to study the Bible in a new way. Because we're talking about the Tanakh, which is the the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Kedavim, which is the the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's how they read the Bible back then. That's not the exact order that the, the books of the Bible are in that we see now. It's mm-hmm. it's not in that order. I mean, the Torah is in correct order, yes, but the prophets aren't all ni- nice and uh, lined up. The writings aren't all nice and lined up, which the writings, I think you said it, uh, Tanner, that, that's like the more poetic stuff, like Psalms and Proverbs, yeah. for instance. So you got to think, how did that change the way that people read the Bible back then? Because that makes me think of, and this might just be a me thing, but when Jesus approached the the woman at the well and agreed with her when she when she said, hey, uh, I'm Or something about not being with her husband, or something like that. It's like, "The that's right. You've you've had five husbands, I, husbands, I believe. The man you are you're with right now isn't your husband. So something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing." Uh, and she says, "I do perceive that you are a prophet." Like I used to just treat that line as like a throwaway. Like, oh, I mean, that's a literal statement. Like, I mean, he's saying stuff that he probably shouldn't have known as a normal human being. She's so saying, "Oh, you're a fortune teller. You're a psychic." That's just another way yeah. of saying it. But you got to think the amount of respect that they had for the prophets, that they gave them their own grouping in the way that they ordered their scriptural readings like that. that just, it it kind of changes the way you think about little scriptures like that. Like her saying, I perceive that you're a prophet might have been more than her saying, like, proverbially, what, are you psychic? Uh, th- there was a little more weight behind it. Now, is that going to completely change the way that you read that scripture? Not necessarily, but it adds a little fun, uh, fun layer to the readings that can make reading the Bible a little more yeah. entertaining. I think.
2: I think we're we. I think my goal, our goal, is to add some nuances. Yeah. And a little bit more juicy details of like, well, that's just interesting to when you read scripture to view it in a different perspective that makes it a little bit more real.
0: Yeah, and you got to keep in mind when Jesus. Talked about scripture. He was talking about the Tanakh. Yeah. It's the same Bible that we have, well the same Old Testament, but the ordering's different. So kind of ask yourself, like, why? Yeah. So, that, so that's just a little bit of trivia for me, I guess.
2: So when when we talk about the, the Tanakh and stuff like that, let's let's talk a little bit about the Bible that we have today. If you go to Walmart or a bookstore and there's a Bible on the shelf for like $6.99 and you buy that Bible, what is canon and canonical. What is, what makes this the 66 books that we have? Why is there not more? Why is there not less? Because there is something called what we would like to call the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal works. And these are 14 books that are not in the Old Testament, but they are classified as quote unquote other writings that of Jewish history or poetry or whatever. And there's stuff like Tobit and Judith and Mac- Maccabees and additions to Esther and stuff like that. And you can buy these off- online and stuff like that. You can buy the Apocrypha and read them if you want to. I think there's something about Dragon, too. So, I mean, if you want to worry about Dragon, sure. Yeah. But anyways, so these were later, they were added and they were replaced as canon, as like this is something that you like. If, if it stayed in there, you could go to Walmart and it would be in there, these 14 other books. So it would be... S- Eighty-two. Man, I don't. I math. math. I don't know math. math 66 guy. would be eighty. 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 Okay, yeah, you're right. So eighty books instead of sixty-six books. So I mean, to me, it's just like, well, that's just that changes things a little bit. But why, Where do we come from this? So, where do we get the canon? So you have different things and we can talk about the history of this and stuff like that and I may be jumping the gun just a little bit but we can backtrack easily but like there's councils within the early church and council of Nicaea and stuff like that and the early church councils and the early fathers decided what was to be official quote unquote Bible what is officially this and they take account of what's inspired scripture what's inspired writings what's not inspired writings uh, what is like a continuation of the same story what's basically like a kind of a copy and paste of the same daggum story. And I think they've concluded that these apocryphal books are kind of like those things like, well, it's not really helpful to the story. It's just another writing that doesn't add to the story of Christ and the kingdom and him coming to reign through the people and die for our sins and coming again. So it's like, I don't know, it's appendix, but does not really?
0: One big reason that they didn't make the the final cut is that, None of the apocryphal books are referenced in the New Testament.
2: Okay, because mm-hmm. the
0: New Testament is
2: yeah chalk full, full of the prophecies of, of the Old Testament, little hyperlinks yep. to
0: even just individual phrases within the Old Testament. None of the Apocrypha shows up in the New Testament.
2: So, the, the, and there's many, many reasons. I mean, and I think this would be a fun read. I've never read the apocryphal books. Yeah. I've got it in my library, but they're they're there for for you readers if you're interested in history. There's history stuff. There's poetic stuff. So, I mean, it's. A nice read, but yeah, it's not needed. It's not within. Not needed, but it might be a good addition to your collection. Yeah, a fine they addition to your collection. They are pretty fun
1: read. I think you said. I think it's the Maccabees. I think there was two of them. The Maccabees
2: are very important. The the referenced, but yet not referenced in the way that Isaiah and yeah. Jeremiah. Yeah, I think and those two are.
1: are considered. I believe there's two. Um, those are like considered like the more important ones. And a lot of people kind of debate like whether they should be included or not. I actually read them in a 1611 version of the King James because they were. It was one of those that had the, um, the 14 what I can 14 books of the Parker the 14 books though. And I actually uh, read most all those, and they are pretty interesting. They have some good historical stuff. I mean, how much did they add to the story of Christ? Not really much, if if anything at all. But it's they not, are interesting. Well, I think
2: okay. So if you're a Jewish individual, I would say it, it is very important because I mean Josephus does uh, make mention of these apocryphal books as like they're good for Jewish historical references. But yet for a Jewish Christo reference, then it's not really important value to the the church per se. Mm-hmm. But the but the Catholics do take it as canon.
0: Yeah, to, to those of you that might be thinking that the apocryphal books are, are not worth your time, don't have to study them. Well, I mean, you, you literally don't have to study them. I'm not here to tell you that like it's going to open your third eye and help you see into heaven. But that was John the Revelator's secret. He, he read the apocryphal and, <laughs> bah, it was there. Um, But you got to keep in mind, the 1611 uh, KJV, the the first edition of the King James Version, until 1769, had the apocryphal books in it like it was studied not not as scripture it wasn't treated as gospel mm. because it, it it's not it's it, it has been deemed as not divinely inspired but it is study material they are writings that are relevant to a Christian you just oh, don't yeah. necessarily like yeah. said, it's yeah.
1: very good to read and i think it can help yeah. but it's one of those things that it's if if that's what you're focusing on then then you then you have the wrong idea on it i think it's good for
2: and uh, we we still got a lot of stuff to talk about, but I think it's good to understand the historical and political context within the Old Testament. It's really good historical
1: value. Yeah,
2: and uh, just to take note, you did say that it it was taken out of the King James Official Revised King James at 17... nine. Sixty nine Oxford. So, but the thing is, though, between the King James sixteen eleven and the seventeen sixty nine, that it was wasn't really canon, but it was an addendum yeah. to that. So it was like you look at yeah, the back. It was additional study material. Yeah, with your maps in the back. Yeah, basically.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of like that. Or if you like to, um, this is not the best example, but it, it's a good way to look at it, though. or Like for people that don't necessarily understand what I'm talking about, you have the New Testament Bibles, but they'll like to throw in Psalms, Psalms. and Proverbs, too, just because a lot of them can be referenced. And yeah. they're, they're also just good material for a, a younger Christian to read.
2: So, basically, one of the big core things that we wanted to talk about this episode that is very touchy is the war on translations. Okay. So, let me give you a translation, a Bible translation, or let's just say scripture as a whole. Let's not talk, because, I mean, I don't really know when it was classified, labeled as the Holy Bible. But they, the scriptural translation timeline is that, so you've got archaic Hebrew in 1450 B.C. and then Aramaic another language came in around 900 BC and then you have the greek septuagint in 350 BC so it's 350 years before christ so let's talk i want to talk about the septuagint real quick cuz this is the question would be so what bible would jesus read what translation would jesus read and the septuagint is the greek old testament that jesus had at his time so this is basically the the everyday carry bible of the jewish individual that spoke greek and aramaic and this, is probably, and this is exactly what Jesus read from. And a little fun fact is that in Matthew, the book of Matthew, which it's interesting, the book of Matthew is geared towards what? The Jews. Matthew is trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is Christ. But the book of Matthew, which is mainly reached towards those, that Jesus quotes the Hebrew translation 10% of the time. But in Matthew, he quotes the Greek Septuagint 90% of the time. So it's something that Jesus, he, he heavily references the Greek Septuagint over the original Hebrew. So that's one thing that Jesus, that Matthew kind of proves this point. But the Greek Old Testament is in between a period of of the 323 BC to 30 30 BC. So this translation became popular amongst first and second second century Jews due to that the ancient Hebrew is kind of not commonly known. It's kind of outdated, uh Language that it was kind of hard to understand. It wasn't the common language of that time. So the Septuagint was a way that uh, Jewish and Greek scholars got together to translate old archaic Hebrew to first and second century or that time, or the Hellenistic period, Greek for common language. So the Septuagint became very common. So, what did Jesus read? How did Jesus speak? Jesus spoke in Aramaic. We see in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, that he says, Abba, Father. That's our Aramaic. So Jesus speaks Greek and Aramaic, and he probably speaks Hebrew as well because, I mean, that's something that they were, I mean, they're part of the Hebrew nation. They speak this. And so, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 21, Jesus reads from Isaiah, and he reads from the Greek Septuagint translation of the text. So when we look at this and we see Jesus, Jesus is reading from a different translation than the original translation. Hebrew. So this is the Greek Septuagint. And so this is around 30, 350 B.C. that this translation becomes into play. And then we see Jesus in 30 A.D. And then you have the, the New Testament letters. Then you have the Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, A.D. The Latin Vulgate and the Apocrypha. And the Roman Catholic Church makes the Apocrypha canon. And then the Roman Catholic Church says, you can only read in Latin but no one really speaks Latin, so it's only for the high-tiered, smart people. And then King Alfred, he pushes for a vernacular, which is basically for common English. And then 1382, 1384 arises, and this is where we really get into a Reformed view of, okay, Scripture is viewed as a high-tiered thing. You go to church, you go to chapel or wherever, uh, and you hear the dude preach, or speak, and he reads scripture, but it's not for you because you don't know Latin. It's 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 not for the common person. And this is where you get the Reformation come into play. And I think, Matthew, you've got a little bit on the history of where do we get the English Bible today? Talking about a little bit of how do we have what we have? Yeah. Well, let me start
0: off with a pop quiz for you two. When was the printing press
1: invented?
2: 1111. 11.
1: Not even close. I remember oh. he said fourteen something. Forty two. Fourteen forty. Forty. So
0: you gotta you gotta think, cause Tanner, you just you just listed off a lot of names and a lot of dates. And I'm sure some people out there dates and, and names go in one ear and out the other. So uh, let
2: I'm just i was playing catch up. Obviously I didn't expect anyone but yet to some people, it would be nice. but Because yeah.
0: I want to add yeah. emphasis to that because there's a lot of value to all the dates and names that we're about to spew out. Because I know this is dangerous territory because I speak as, as someone who also is terrible with dates and numerous names and uh, historical context like that. When, when it comes to remembering times and dates, like I am bad. But this stuff is valuable enough that like I actually have this stuff memorized. I've, it's been so long since I've memorized a date before. 1440, I don't have that written down, my, down in my notes, people. Be proud of me. But anyway— <laughs> This is valuable stuff because you gotta keep in mind. Now, bookbinding has been a thing since like the, I think the sixth century or something like that. I'm probably off on that because I, I didn't study that super hard, but book bookbinding's been a thing for a while, but the printing press wasn't. So that meant if you wanted a book, you had to write it or you had to buy it from someone who wrote it. And given the fact that writing a book takes a very long time, books weren't cheap and not everyone had the money to, to buy books.
2: So, or the skill to write the book.
0: Yeah, or the skill to write the book. Or the skill to translate the book. I say this to set up the fact that the King James Version is kind of what we treat as being like the first English Bible. Like, it's mm-hmm. what the basis of everything uh, is built off of. All modern translations these days use the KJV mm-hmm. as a reference point. So, why, why, why the KJV? Like, what series of events resulted in the 1611 King James version of the Bible to become what we have today well it starts with all those names and dates that you just listed off Tanner but you got to keep in mind most translations of the Bible into English never really got completed either because the just the project kind of fell flat because again it's it's I don't know if you guys knew this, but the internet didn't exist back in the thirteen
2: hundreds. People didn't have Google. But I know, I no, I know the answer to this. I know how we got the King James is that God sent a dove attached with the King James sixteen eleven. Dang it, I was gonna get to that, Tanner. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the dove came uh, down and then released this book freely, without charge. Perma. Well, turtle dove. All right. Well, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> that's, that's episode.
0: We got it. That's uh, you're correct. Uh, but anyway, like, it it was hard to to get a hold. Of English text when you have to translate it from another language because you don't have Google Translate. You can't just type in like all these obscure characters and boom, it comes up. No, you had to get a bunch of experts, but very few languages translate one to one to each other. You have to get a lot of smart people in the same room and have these conversations of like, okay this word in this context Means this in English, but this word, the same word in another context means this in English. Like it, it took a lot of firepower to like get enough knowledge in one room to pull that off.
2: Let's just go ahead and point this out too is that English was a very young language at this exactly. time because English is dumb. True. <laughs> but English did not exist at Paul's time and English did not exist in Jesus' time. And so you've yeah. got basically 1,300 years worth yeah. of creating this language from Anglo-Saxon and Germanic yeah. uh, roots to a English language. And the English that they spoke in the 1300s is not the same English as that we speak in the 21st century. Yeah. And
0: another th- thing to keep in mind, the dictionary didn't exist yet. And the dictionary still didn't exist when the 1611 King James Version of the Bible came out. People were spelling things however they darn well pleased. You had versions of the King James uh, Bible that had the same words spelled differently because, hey— Someone else wrote it. <laughs> like that's just how this stuff went. Like a W was literally two U's. You had uh, letters that don't even exist in mo- uh, the modern day English I the alphabet. I think S's were, were F's. No, S's were an F without the cross. Yeah. It, it was it was the Wild West of spelling things. People V's just spelled stuff well, however they wanted and assumed you would know what they meant.
2: Like uh, when it comes to like when they did census and stuff like that during this time, is that like since there was like no dictionary and stuff like that of of names and stuff like that when. Let's say my name is you know my name's Tanner Higgins, and I spell Higgins, and then my cousin is named Higgins, but he says it differently. The whoever's taking the census will write it how he hears it, and a lot of times you might h- see other misspellings of those last names or first names. And so it's the same daggum word; it's just misspelled differently because they write what they hear. Yeah. And so it's basically a hooked on phonics type deal thing, you know. Yeah.
0: Now I say all this; all all this does have purpose. I'm not just rambling about the English language. I say all this because I don't know if you knew this, dear listener, but the 1611 edition of the King James Version not only wasn't the first English translation of the Bible, it's not even the first official English translation of the Bible.
2: I just told you that the turtle dove brought it down, bro.
0: Well, buddy, that turtle dove didn't didn't travel as fast as some (laughs) of the other animals that were dropping off English translations. It is actually the third officially recognized English translation of the Bible. So why is it
2: not... Why, why do we not know this? Oh, it's, it, why is this not common knowledge? Well, for one, because it
0: requires you to know a lot of dates and a lot of names. True. And you have to force kids to sit in a classroom to be fed that kind of information. And most of it's going to go in one ear and out the other. You, this is the kind of stuff you have to desire the knowledge for, to be yeah. completely honest. Because this is stuff that I feel like to some people, this is this is dry stuff. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to admit, this isn't like super exciting stuff. But to me right now, it is. Because yeah. this, this puts a lot of value on how far we've come to get the Bible that we have today. Yeah. So allow, allow me to begin with a, with our first date, 1384. This dude named uh, John Wycliffe, he was a heretic, according to the Catholics at least. My, the story of the King James vi- Version of the Bible includes the word heretic quite often. It, it's hilarious. I love it. The, I've gained, I never thought I'd say this fellas, but I have gained a respect for the King James Version of the Bible, never thought it happened, but here we are. Easy. <laughs> no, it, it it's, it's a good version. Um, but John Wycliffe, he he had a bunch of followers that that thought that the Catholics were dumb, and they decided, you know what? Let, let's let's have our own version of the Bible. It's in English because, as you said, Tanner, they were, they're were all about the the Latin that they, they Latin wanted Vulgate, to keep yep. to keep the hoi polloi, the the normal people away from from Scripture. Because I mean, hey, they're not good enough. They're not bishops. They're not they're not popes so they're like let's let's do our own translation let's get some some people that are familiar with latin that are familiar with the original hebrew and greek let's get together and see if we can't get this thing done well it was banned in 1409 because all of the history i'm about to say takes place in england by the way well not specifically england but like that territory it was a different area than england is now because i mean they like took over the world and all that good stuff but that's history that i'm not familiar with yeah Uh, but it was banned in 1409 because well he ticked off the catholics by being a massive heretic Another thing you got to keep in mind when it comes to all these different um, attempts to create an English Bible, they're not necessarily connected to each other because, again, the Internet wasn't a thing. People weren't connected on the level that they are today. So a lot of these were kind of isolated incidents. And most of these Bibles, with the exception of the two that officially, I say officially with air quotes, uh, preceded the King James Version Bible. Like, none of them took off. Like, no no one read them outside of the groups that translated them. They never got widespread because, again, printing press wasn't even going to come into the picture until 1440. So people were handwriting the stuff. So they weren't giving them out like the Gideons do these days. That, that stuff was just completely out of the picture. And even when the printing press became a thing, it was a new technology. It was expensive and difficult to get that, that sort of stuff printed. And you definitely wouldn't have enough to just be passing it around. So, again, very difficult to, like, get a translation and be like, this is the one. This is the English translation. It's hard to even get it finished, much less get it out there. So our next example of a Bible, which was? The first officially recognized English translation of the Bible is called, interestingly enough, the Great Bible. Ah. And the translation of this was headed up by an associate of our good friend Martin Luther, Mm -hmm. whose name was William Tyndale. He didn't get to finish it, though, because he was not only excommunicated, he was executed
2: by the Catholics. (laughs) For being a heretic. <laughs> and I want to let's make mention and give uh, homage to Luther, too, because he also translated the New Testament from uh, Latin to German. Uh, oh, yeah. And so he also was hunted down. He wasn't killed. Mm-hmm. He died of old age. But yet he was hunted down by the Catholic Church because he was the one that printed it. He nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of the church yep. and said, this is what the church is doing wrong, and we're going to do something different. And so he basically did scripture and made the common tongue for the German people. And so Tyndale uh, profited off of uh, Luther's obedience to God, for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so a guy named Miles Coverdell picked up the pieces and finished it up around 1539. Again, isolated an instant to come after that. The Geneva Bible was the next kind of big one, although it wasn't officially recognized because it didn't pay enough respects to the Catholics, and the Catholics didn't really get it on their uh, radar enough to be like, hey— this guy in particular needs to go down because guess guess who was central to the Geneva Bible's translation? I think you know, Tanner, so I'm going to ask Mason. He's looking at my notes. I did see it. Our boy, John Calvin. The boy. <laughs> John Calvin did something useful.
2: <laughs> Listen, he, he we're not going to completely discredit Calvinism here. We're, we're, we're not anti-Calvinist. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, but yes, John Calvin, he, he was an instrumental part of the church for sure in yeah. the Bible translation.
0: And that was in the year 1560. And while it what he didn't get picked up by the Catholics enough to like get executed as a previous translator did, mm. but they were aware of it. The English Catholic Church um, did actually respond to it. They got a hold of the Geneva Bible and were like, hey, this guy went to some good efforts. Uh, we're not going to kill him, but instead we're going to make this Bible a Bible that we agree with. So they made some. Creative changes. Liberties. And then, yeah, a lot lot of them. And came out with the updated version of it called the Bishop's Bible, which was published in 1568. It was was more or less just the Geneva Bible, but it it replaced the Presbyterian um, values that John Calvin held dear, which basically, if you want to boil it down to super simplified terms, it's just church lay leaders versus church bishops. So it's more the foundation of what we have today. So the Geneva Bible is actually the first big step in the direction to get the KJV mm-hmm. uh, because the KJV borrowed quite a bit from the Geneva yeah. Bible. For instance, one thing that the Geneva Bible uh, ticked the Catholics off uh, with in particular was the fact that it added a lot of words to it. And that sentence sounds really nefarious until you realize what those words are. If you ever read the King James Version of the Bible, or really any version of the Bible, you're going to notice there are lots of these, those, a... And in the KGB, specifically, they're italicized. Yes. Those are the words because John Calvin and his merry group of translators decide they were going to just translate it as literally as human, humanly possible. He did have a lot of very smart uh, linguistics translators at his disposal. That came with a, a pretty good, true-to-form translation from the original Greek-Hebrew and the little bits of Latin here and there but it didn't flow very well because those <laughs> languages don't translate one-to-one to English. They had yeah. more or less just a bunch of jumbled word salad with like, oh, hey, hey Jesus is in this paragraph, okay. Uh. So they had to add a lot of English words to make it flow. And well, the Catholics were like, oh, that, that's, that, that's heresy, you can't do that, blah, 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 blah. But when the KJV was getting translated, they were like, you know what? That does make it pretty readable. <laughs> so they ported that over. So now we're in the era of the KJV in case you haven't figured it out since I've I've name dropped that.
2: Let's also i want to point one thing is that now the reigns are kind of let loose upon the translations because in fifteen eighty two, which is a couple of years after that, is that the Roman Catholic Church surrenders the Latin only edict. So it's oh, basically I didn't know that. so at right then is I think is where it kind of basically translation can kind of roam free and do your own daggum thing. So sixteen eleven of prayers. Yeah. That
0: and the printing press have been around for a while, so the printing press is a little less expensive to get fired up. It's a little more affordable to get things printed, and therefore mm. you can get circulation a little more. Also, you might have noticed that in the successful translations, the, the successfully distributed English translations, were backed by, like, a governing body. Uh, you had... The Great Bible and the Bishop's Bible were both more or less backed by the Catholic Church. The Great, the Great Bible a little more begrudgingly so, since it was tied to a guy that they had killed. But the Bishop's Bible was more or less uh, formally promoted by the English Catholic Church. Just a person couldn't get this stuff done, which, I mean, we've already gone over, like, hey, printing press expensive. You can't just distribute that kind of stuff like you can today. Uh, but you had to get a governing body behind you or you were dead in the water. So that's why the King James Version of the Bible is called the King James Version of the Bible. Because King James in 1604 was like, all right, we, we, need, to, we need to take care of some stuff. We're not going to pander to the Catholics. We, we, need, we need a unified translation of the Bible that churches everywhere can read in English. Mm-hmm. Like he was, he was actually being a man of the people uh, in a sense there. And it's also worth worth mentioning that the translators weren't out here to dethrone other versions of the Bible. The first editions of the 1611 King James Version of the Bible actually had a preface put in place by the translators making it clear that they didn't believe that other versions of the Bible were not the Word of God. They were simply wanting to make an effort to create another Good, complete English translation of the Bible. It it went to great lengths to say, like, look, we're not trying to throw other versions. Other versions are not illegitimate because we printed this one. Just we wanted to make an effort to just do the Lord's work, essentially. And that Lord's work was done by 47 different scholars across several different campuses, ranging from uh, Cambridge to Oxford. Um, I don't know if Yale was around yet. I'm not super fresh on all the names of the, the different areas. Uh, but a lot of drama went into it. Isn't Yale in America so... Oh, definitely not. Yeah, forget I said that. Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking of smart colleges. I was like, okay, we got Oxford. I, I know Oxford and I know Cambridge. They yeah, they both had had a part in there. And I was like, uh, let let's see if we can get a third college in there. Uh, Yale.
2: The <laughs> Trinity. We're going, we're yeah. going
0: three tier here. Yeah, I was going off my study materials. <laughs> that went off the rails pretty quick. Uh, but when I think of the KJV, like I've I've trash talked it in the past, all in good fun. Like, obviously, I'm perfectly fine with it. I've I've studied it most of my life. Um, and it's only been in the past several years that I've gone into other translations. But KJV is seen as like the OG because yeah. in a lot of ways it is, even though we just covered that it wasn't literally the first. But it it's it's it might as well be the first. let's just be honest here. It's the King James Version of the Bible. So you don't think of it as being like a controversial book. If anything, you see other translations as being controversial, like modern-day translations, like, say, uh, The Message. Like, some people have issues with that one because of the creative liberties that it takes. And, I mean, that's, that's a discussion for another time or maybe later in this episode. Who knows? It depends. But you don't really think of the KJV as being like that hot topic sort of issue. But it was. A lot of people had an issue with the Bible. Uh, the King James version of the Bible, specifically because of what it took from the Geneva version—the addition of the these, those, as—the th- the things that makes it readable in English. There's actually a dude that was originally on the translator panel, one of one of the groups that that did the translating. I think he worked on uh, some of the prophets, specifically uh, in the Old Testament, but he got kicked out because he's a very angry man, a very disagreeable man, by the name of Hugh. Rotten, rotten. Probably saying that wrong, but anyway, he was banned from translating the KJV due to the fact that he would argue with him so much over this lack of word for word. um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Equivalence, word for word equivalence, uh, which again because of all the, the English words they added into there, and the words that he had for the translators when the Bible came out is it's something to behold because he said he would rather be torn in pieces by wild horses than to have this abominable translation ever be foisted upon the English people. That's the kind of drama that surrounded the KJV, because that's just one example. There's plenty of others, but I didn't want to waste, like, 20 minutes of our time just talking about, like, Bible scholars at the time trash-talking the KJV. It was, it was a hot-button topic, because, again, it was more or less like— this was the first time that the true, like, common man could get a hold of a Bible. Like, every church had them. Like, that, that was part of, like, the big uh, force behind the KJV, because King James was like, this is going to be in every church. This is what the churches are going to read. We're going to let the people read the Bible, Dad it. They're going to read the Bible, and they're going to like it. So your average Joe was finally able to read Scripture. So the fact that there were what some people believed to be excessive creative liberties, it was, it, was, it was heresy, heresy on a mass scale. You've also got to keep in mind, as we've touched on already, that the original 1611 did include those 14 apocryphal books. It was in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't until 1769 that a group of scholars at Oxford took that out. Um, And there was no specific reason for that other than the fact that, like, most churches weren't really utilizing it anymore because, I mean, you had kind of more a puritanical outlook on it uh, within America, even though it wasn't America yet. (laughs) Well, it wasn't the United States of America. Yet um, it, it just wasn't being utilized as much. So they took it out, kind of kind of save money on printing costs. Uh, but one of the main reasons that Oxford kind of did this retooling of uh, scriptures because, well, they finally had a dictionary. So it was time to make sure that the words were spelled right. <laughs> it's time to make sure that uh, these and thous are actually these and thous. And that's kind of what we have nowadays. There have been a few updates since then. And I think Mason has a, might have a little knowledge on that, a little more so than I do. But more or less, the 16 or 1769 version of the King James is what we
1: have now. Is that is that right? Um, I believe I believe the, the that's true. Yes. Um, so a lot of people that are, I mean, I hate to just throw this on as a label. But KGV only people will be like, oh, we only use like the 1611 version. Well, that's just about as far from the truth as it gets, because that's if, if that's the case. Yeah. I don't know how you're reading it. I mean, I know I can't read very good anyway, but I know you definitely are going to have a harder time reading 1611. I've tried it. <laughs> um, but for, that's first off wrong. The one that we use today is actually, it's not, a, I, I was looking this up before we've done this. It's actually not called a revision. It's just a new edition. Um, I believe in mine it is the fourth edition, and I don't know, Authorized King James, we got one right here. Let me see
0: also, fun fact, since you said authorized, the Bible's never been authorized. How how does one authorize the Bible? Like,
2: authorized by God. I God told God you did. the dove, yeah. man. Had
0: a seal. Well, the the thing is, the King James usually says authorized, and there was an a official, I say official with quotations because it wasn't official, an a, authorized version Um uh, it was one of the many editions of the king james that passed between 1611 and 1769 authorized was thrown around a lot even though the word meant literally nothing because again like how does how, how do you authorize that i mean it was authorized for printing i guess but i mean it was always authorized well, for well printing it was authorized by the
2: king i mean he authorized them to do king yeah james. but what makes
0: one version authorized and another one not it, i think it's
2: one of those things yeah, my guns are bigger West than yours time. yeah Let's, let's let's boast about it and
1: stuff yeah. like that. Okay, this one doesn't, but I think mine. It actually says like this is the fourth edition, and that's what. I, unless I'm just getting things completely wrong, uh, but I did do a little bit of research on this a couple years ago. Uh, the King James is around the fourth edition, so it it has been updated from the 1611 three different times. We I think we used, like to call the 1611 like the first edition, and then. The one we use now is three more later, but on top of that, just to kind of throw in a new one, literally the New King James. A lot of, uh, like I said, the kgv only people will try to, you know, bash on New mm-hmm. King James and stuff like that. It's actually really close to the King James. I believe it's only the sixth edition. Well, maybe the seventh, but I don't think it's higher than the seventh.
2: So the King James, uh, which is uh, when it was translated in sixteen eleven. Uh, what they wanted to do, there were some translators that wanted to take the 1611 King James and translate it back to Greek. And this is what they would call the Textus Recepticus. And this Textus Recepticus was basically a translation in Greek of the 1611 translation from English. So you've got a translation of a translation. And the New King James uh, took all their translation information from the Textus Recepticus instead of the King James mm-hmm. third 4th edition, fourth edition. Third edition, the fourth, I fourth I believe. edition. So I mean, basically, it's a translation of a translation of a translation. The New King James. It's like a game of telephone. So here, here's and I'm not I, like I, I, here's one thing that the the King James I think, and a lot of the the, the whole church as, as as a whole, doesn't see this as an issue. But we're kind of in an area that is kind of it kind of is an issue almost. And I hate I hate that it, it is an issue. It's 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 silly. It really is silly. But there are some that take the sixteen eleven translators as inspired by God. The sixteen eleven. There are some in the KJV only camp that says that those individuals that did the translating, that I think what is it, is it fifty four translators or whatnots? Or the fifty four or the forty seven? 47. Was it 47? Well, it was actually, they started with 57,
0: but 10 of them, which... Got excommunicated. Yeah, like the Hugh Broughton guy that had problems with it got got kicked out. So we got 10 Judases, I guess. Yeah,
2: But there are some that would say that this is inspired by God. The 1611, the translators were inspired, basically putting them on the same level as like Paul, John, and Peter. And to me, that is very dangerous because it's like you've got... A translation of a translation that is not literally a one-to-one, and I'm, and we'll talk about it here of like why it's necessary to have modern translations coming from the King James as a staple, as a foundational point for that. But I mean, I, I think it's very dangerous to have that viewpoint that, that it is. So let me ask this question. I said I was going to use this as my closing point. Let's just ask this now. So why do we use? Let me give you some reasons. I believe in you. So let me give you some reasons, and I think Mason will agree to me, is the reasons why I do not use the King James and some reasons why I do use the King James. So reasons why I don't use the King James is because I don't live in 1611. Or 1700. Or 1700. And the English language is a very complicated and a very fast-moving language that is changing by the century.
0: It, it's it's by the every year, right? by the year. Yeah, yeah, now it's changing. Words the year. get added to the dictionary yeah. literally every year.
2: So words that King James in 1611 used is not the same words that I use, that we use today. And so I don't use it because I, I, uh, when I study and I and I use it for myself, my personal study. I, that's one reason why I don't use it for my personal study is because. It's hard to look up some words and thinking I kind of want to flow and get in in peace with God and read Scripture. And I'm not saying anything against the King James because the King James is written in a way, and I'll talk about this in a minute. The King James is that some of the translators actually put literary emphasis on certain things over literal word for word. Like you said, you put these and thousand thus in there to make it flow, but they put it in there also to make it beautiful. And... Uh, the re- some of the research that I've done is that these translators in the 1611 when they translated it, they took the New Testament Greek and did not know that it was for the common man, but they took it as a like a high tier this is a special type of Greek. then they actually called it a Holy Ghost Greek. No joke. they call it the holy Ghost, Holy Ghost Greek and they say that like so this is one reason they try to keep it as like, very fancy and proper and stuff like that so i'm not fancy and proper i hardly wear ties what's a tie so as as a as a 21st christian as a 21st century christian i think it's important to have some of these other translations to study God's Word and to have a little bit of better understanding of what was going on. And we'll talk about that in a minute of like, how do we get modern translations and what's the purpose of that? But the reasons why I do use the King James is because I think there's a important purpose of having unity and a purpo- an important purpose of being on the same page. And there's one reason why I preach, no matter where I am in the area or, or what church, I always use the King James because it is kind of the standard. It is a standard within this region, and I see nothing wrong with preaching out of the ESV or, or, the NLT or the New King James or whatever. The KJV is kind of the standard, the staple of the way we can all be on the same page. So why would I not? Why would I put a stumbling block or stone, blatantly in front of somebody that has an issue with other translations? And so that's one reason why. And then that's that's the reason why I do use it. So I mean, there's nothing wrong with using other translations too.
0: Now, let me just take this little monkey wrench and chuck it right in your face. Chuck it. I do agree that I think it's good that we all kind of like get on the same page and agree, like, okay, there is this one specific version of the Bible that we can all rally behind. So, like, you don't just have like dogs and cats living together, everyone on different versions of the Bible. So, when somebody's leading a discussion, everyone else is looking around and being like, am 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 I in the right place? I get that. But, this is a belief that, because for a while there was a period of time in which, like, I genuinely just I I, I was sick and tired of the KJV, like the, these and those just weren't weren't doing it for me, and my trash talk was a little more personal than it was just joking around. Now I've, well, for one, I've stopped being an edgy teenager since then, so like there's that, but I obviously I respect the KJV, especially after all the the research I've done over the history of it. That I, I love it. I love I love the King James version. There, I said it. I've said it before. Two witnesses and God Himself. Like I love the KJV. It it's great that we got this this wonderful work of English art. Like it. it That's it what it tr- is. It's yeah. art. It's it's, it's a beautiful work of art. It's it's an amazing accomplishment. That being said, do you think that there there could be some a little bit of danger in relying on it in all situations? I say that because. Who is going to be who's getting witnessed to, to the King James? Do you think there could be some detriment in like a, a not yet believer going to church for the first time and being preached a sermon out of the KJV?
2: I think so. I think as a new, a, a new believer does not need to read a King James Version Bible. Yeah. And I know that sounds really bad. And I know that a lot I mean, of the people that I mean, we know would be like, that's heretical. New believers, and especially children. Like, yeah. I, I do believe that
0: the very different way that the English language works in the KJV compared to now could could be a stumbling block. I think that is something worth considering when it comes to reading the King James Version. I have nothing against it as a version, but I do think that it does present a bit of an obstacle in witnessing.
2: I, I would agree, especially when it comes to uh, speaking the common language that it is written in. So let's talk about modern translations now.
0: Okay, let, so, let, so kind
2: of getting off KJV. Not, not out of a lack of respect
0: for KJV, because I, I do think that it's sort of an issue. Um, I have no problem with it being preached out of, don't get me wrong. But I think like Sunday school, maybe switch it up. It's,
2: it's worth talking about. Yeah. So so what sort of versions could we read from in that environment, Tanner? Yeah. So let, let me, let's talk about why we need modern translations. So let's talk about the translations that we have. And I'm going to go back a little bit. I'm not going to give any dates. But there are, in the, in the Old Testament, when it comes to the Septuagint, and we talk about that, and I think this shows power of the preservation of God's word. And it's like, you know, we can trust the word that we read, that it hasn't been contorted Massively and greatly and great amounts of things. So the Septuagint the scripture has been divinely preserved because the earliest Hebrew translators that when they come to the, the Masoretic text of the King James, because the King James, when they, when they translated the Hebrew, the Old Testament, they used the Masoretic text, which is around the 5th century A.D. And that's the earliest that they could find It's 5th century A.D., but until 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm sure that's kind of a common thing that people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that they found near the Dead Sea in a cavern. They found several pots and jars full of text and, and scrolls and things of parchments of the Old Testament writings of the Tanakh. And they compared these scrolls and they dated them that they were a thousand years older than what the 1611 translation was used from, and it was basically a copy and paste. So you've got what they were using for almost 2,000 years worth of stuff. You know, 1600 were uh, 1600 years worth of stuff, and they found a translations or 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 scriptures a thousand years older, and it's basically the same stuff. And then to me, that shows me that God has preserved it in a way that it's the same words that we read here today is the same words that God spoke to Moses and Abraham and the prophets. So, I mean, I think that's, that's powerful. The new Testament manuscripts. And I think this is a Testament of how powerful and how accurate that we can get. The new Testament is preserved with over 14,000 different manuscripts, 14,000 different manuscripts. And the reason why we can trust that is because that is more manuscripts than the, the, uh, Homer and the Odyssey. That is more manuscripts than uh, the Quran. That is more manuscripts than any kind of major work, ancient work combined. Combined, and so this is so much uh, information and preservation of scripture. Because guess what? That like we talked before, they didn't have the printing press back in. Paul's time, basically they copy, they wrote stuff down and they sent it to other churches and they tried to get the word of God out as far as they could to as many people as they could. I mean, it's like taking notes, you know, if you want to tell somebody something, you write it down. And this is what they did in the old in the New Testament. And Paul wrote these letters and it was basically trying to get the word of God out. And so, like I said, there's 14,000 plus different manuscripts from like uh, different regions within the Mediterranean area. But they've grouped it into three different categories. And these are called the Alexandrian text type, which is the earliest, the oldest, and they're actually the minority of the manuscripts. And you've got the Western text type, and you've got the Byzantine text type. And the Byzantine text type is the majority of the stuff. So, I mean, obviously, the younger it is, the more that you have, and the older it is, the less that you have, you know, degradation. And, and, you know, you fold stuff up, and it it passed on, and it kind of loses its... Legibility. Legi- uh, yeah, legibility. and It breaks apart, and you can see pictures and stuff like that. And, that's, and, and so you've got the Byzantine, which is the younger stuff. So most modern translations base their modern translation off the King James, like we said. And the King James took all their translation from the Byzantine translation, basically the youngest of the translation stuff. So why do you think we have different translations? Let me ask you that. Why do we have so many different, like we have the new King James, the... The New American Standard, the Holman Standard, you've got, you know, the ESV, the Amplified, the Message. Why do you think we have so many?
0: I don't have an answer for that. If I'm, if I'm being honest, like th- that's a question that I'm aware of. Like I've kind of asked myself that question before, but I've never done like my own research to figure out, like why specifically. Because it's so easy to look at a lot of different versions of the Bible, and it doesn't seem like much has changed between one mm-hmm. or the other. Like uh, there's some that are, seem borderline indistinguishable, and there's some that it's the same words, but in different orders, you know? Like it, So, I, I don't know. Enlighten me.
2: Well, what if I told you it was a money game? Capitalism
0: wins again? Dang it!
2: That's going to be a peak.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <sighs> That's, That's what I said gates for.
2: <sighs> this may be hard, hard to understand, but since the Bible is the number one bookseller other than The Fifty Shades of Grey... You got to think that this is also a way for publishing companies to see a money game, and that, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. But it's the truth. You got Zondervan, you've got uh, Holman, and you've got different uh, different publishing companies that put their money into it. And that's a that's a bad way to view it. But 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 but, but there's a but to that. <laughs> I was about to hear, like, no. some sort of like deep philosophical. Well, like, you see, these certain philosophers,
0: I don't know. No. Capitalism. Sorry. Capitalism. <laughs> that's why.
2: <laughs> so, and that's the reality of things. I mean, if you want an all awesome that's one reason why we have many, many different versions. Because, I mean, you look at, like, you made mention of the message. And the message, I don't, I don't think it's a bad translation because it's not a word-for-word translation like the King James is to the Hebrew and Greek and the Aramaic. The message was basically. I don't even say it. it's not really a translation; it's a paraphrase by a, a one dude named uh, Eugene Peterson, and he basically took old archaic metaphors and paraphrased it to metaphors that we can kind of understand today. Well, didn't he do it could, for his daughter? That I don't know.
1: That's what I've always heard. It's, but he wanted to take the Bible and put it in a way that uh, that because it, it's the Bible, Christianity is. In a form like of what Jesus done is in a form that children can ex accept. Yeah. So he wanted to put the word into a form that his daughter could read and like uh, like understand it. Instead of having to read fifty two verses in one chapter, you know, be able just to read a paragraph or two and still get the meaning, the gist of it, without all the nitty gritty details.
2: Now let me get this straight. A lot of people when it first came out. Hated on the message, and I don't want to hate on it because it's 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 not a word. It's not meant to be a word for word translation. It's not really. I don't think it's meant to be preached behind the pulpit. And it's like, I think it's a different way to view the story, the message, the core uh, thing that that is meant to be received through the text. And so that's one thing, like what we talked about last the last fortnights ago, is that sometimes we can worship the text over what the text is actually saying. And I think that this is what the the message was trying to do is trying to get the message out instead of the word for word translation.
1: Yeah. Out.
0: Like I mean, it's like Mason, when you were talking about people that are KJV only and treat the, the KJV as though it's like the only correct version of the Bible. It's the only version that has like all the words, right? It's the only version that's true to the original Hebrew and Greek when, I mean, that's, That's just absolutely not true i mean one of the unfortunate shortcomings of it being translated in 1611 or when the process started in 1604 is the fact that translations come a long way since then there there is a lot of stuff that gets lost in translation
2: so let me let me go so I, i gave you that capitalism pill bomb and it sucked still depressed okay but Here's some more, I think, important reasons why I think there's many other translations is that one thing we have already discussed is that language is an adapting, changing thing over time, okay? And I think that's important to realize that we've already talked about that language changes. And that's one reason why you need to have the most important book ever to be published in humanity to adapt over time with the people that talk with it. That's one reason why they wrote so many manuscripts is to get the word out, and I think that we need to have that applied to us the best way that we can. Another is that the manuscripts are being discovered all the time, you know, parchments and and things like that. We talked about, you know, the the King James used the 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 Byzantine text, but yet we're, we're discovering stuff that's that's older than that from a uh, second to third century. And I, I think one of the most important thing is that one reason why we need many translations is that. The most important thing we got is the dispersion of the message of God to other languages and cultures. That's the most important, I think, this is the reason why we need many translations, is to reach as many people as we can through the message of God. Now, the 1611 King James only used six major manuscripts? Well, it, it, it used
0: four major ones, but it used eight in total.
2: Okay, so the King James 1611 used eight total manuscripts from the Byzantine text from the 10th century, but over time more and more fragments and manuscripts have been found dating back to the, you know what I said earlier is that the Alexandrian uh, text type. And so there are some with, with these new Greek manuscripts being found, it can confirm text and also proofread Text so over time we see that like in, in the only begotten son and you see in, in John chapter three verse sixteen the only begotten son it's a better translation uh, through these Greek manuscripts that we found is that the one and only son instead of the begotten son and, and in First John chapter five which is this is disputed disputed within the King James only camp too King James only at make sure that this is in there and then a lot of translations actually take. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 out. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 is actually not found anywhere, anywhere in the Greek manuscripts. Nowhere in the Greek manuscripts is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, but it is added later on and later into the Latin Vulgate and stuff like that. So you see it in a lot of the Germanic uh, translations and the Latin and stuff like that. And so it really, to be honest, here's some heresy. I don't, most modern, uh, uh, translating scholars don't think 1 John chapter 5 verse 7 needs to be in the bible because it is not in the original greek that is actually added later on within the translators of liberty being given so mason read 1 John chapter 5 verse 7 and see if this is in first issue. John First John chapter 5 verse 7
1: for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one Okay, so this verse is not mentioned anywhere in the Greek text, like I said before.
2: And this is why we have so many translations take some verses out, because the translators choose to use one text type with the Byzantine or the Alexandrian or the Western type over another. Or they use an older translation over the younger manuscripts that those certain texts do not have those certain verses in them. So that's why a lot of modern translations, they're like, well, we want to be as closely as we can to the original as possible. So here's the Greek manuscripts that we have. So they don't have this verse in it, so we're not going to put it in it. And so a lot of these, a lot of these uh, Bibles, I think like the CSB has footnotes is that some translations have this verse in it and it says this stuff. So let me ask this question. Is this a problem with erasing doctrine? Because if that—it's talking about the Trinity, of that they're working together. Is this a problem? If, th- if this is taken out of the modern translations, is this a problem of erasing important doctrine?
0: I don't think it should be taken out with no explanation. Uh, you're talking about how the CSB has a footnote. I think that's a good, good alternative. Because, I mean, I think that's more for the reader to decide, you know? I mean, does, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because that makes me think of uh, one thing that I forgot to bring up when we were talking about the Apocrypha earlier, and I won't I won't dwell on it too much since that's kind of past us right now. But, like, there were four books of Esdras in the Apocryphal books. Now there are only two in the Apocryphal books. The reason is because first and second, Esdras got renamed to Ezra and Nehemiah. Do we need to take those out? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think they function just fine in the Bible, and I think the Apocrypha is just fine as a book to study on its own. Uh, I think when it comes to reading that stuff, that it's—I mean—it's between you and God studying that sort of thing.
2: And this is what they like. I, I agree. I don't think this is a challenge against doctrine because if this is an issue with the Trinity, then if a if the NIV, the non-inspired version, is out to get you. And all these other modern translations is a devil working through translators tr- trying to get rid of doctrine. If this is the case, and they're taking First John chapter five verse seven, then they also need to take out like a lot of other verses that deny the Trinity. And you go through all these other translations, and it not it does not deny the Trinity. And sometimes these translations will, will would take disputed verses out, but then later on you have a text that will gladly support it and even better than what that text does so you're not eliminating doctrine at all you're just trying to get a more accurate translation of what the original text was saying and so i I, it's not a problem i don't think at all with especially with verse john chapter 5 verse 7 and that's the thing with the english language it's it rapidly changes and words that mean one thing means something different over like we said a short period of time and it's like saying like changing tires on your car It's needed, the language, it's needed to go places, but yet, guess what? You need to rotate, and you need to change your tires every so thousand miles, you know? And so it's something that language, you view language as tires, but yet the message of God as the car. And that's one thing that we need to view in the words within the King James English Bible that are lost in modern English. So any of y'all know what the heck ambassage means? No. It's in the Bible. What What about brigadine? No. Well, that's in the Bible, too. What about importunity?
0: Is it related to opportunity?
2: No. <laughs> but these words, I, I, you know what? I didn't have these, but these words, we don't even know what the heck they mean. Ooh, s- speaking of words that we don't know what the heck they mean, there is also
0: a, another word, uh, bishopric, which is in there because of one specific translator on the panel that insisted on that word not being changed. Bishopric? Bishopric. I like that. Bishop with R-I-C-K-E thrown on the end. Hmm. All because one person in in the translator group was like,
2: no, leave it in. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> but these are words, 1611 words, that we do not use in the 21st century language. I think this is a reason that we probably need to uh, maybe adapt to a more 21st century understanding of what these words mean. Um what about words that kind of mean something differently in matthew chapter six verse six jesus says you know go to a closet and pray closet or you put your clothes and shoes and stuff like that in but a closet the greek temion, is basically a secret place a, a a closed room it's nowhere you put your clothes it's just basically a room that you go to secretly do something yourself it has nothing to do with clothes what about in acts chapter 26 verse 11 paul says that uh, it says that paul was compelled he tried to compel believers to blaspheme Compel is very passive, but yet the Greek compel is actually threatened to push, to force people to blaspheme. So that, that's not the same word that we use, but yet it's within the King James translation. And in Psalm chapter 37, verse 14 in Ephesians 4, 2, the same word for conversation is to talk. You know, we think we conversation. we're having a conversation right now. But in these texts, the Hebrew and Greek, it means a road, a way of life. So it's a different, completely different word than what we mean today. And so this is one thing with we, that we need modern translations is that you need to have a conversation here. And this is what the Greek translation of these letters, the, the Greek letters that Paul wrote, and and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all these men that were inspired by God, when they wrote the these letters in the New Testament, they were written in what they would call the Koine Greek. And Koine Greek is common language, casual speech. And the reason for that is that, guess what? God wanted his word to be presented to the common people. And so, when we, and, and I may mention this before, is that the early scholars, they thought the New Testament was this high hierarchy, special type of Holy Ghost provided special speech, angelic speech. But in reality, it is written in a common tongue. And so because of sometimes these translators become more literary than literal, and sometimes they embellish these phrases and words and to make them sound more beautiful. And modern translators, the practice that principle of bringing the text to the common everyday language for everyone. And I think that's important that I think that we need to kind of have grace upon these modern translations is because it goes back to the root of what the apostles and the epistles were trying to do and to bring the Word of God to the common, language, to the common speech, to everyday man, and there's a place for the King James. It, has a, it is a beautiful language, and I think that, to be honest, sometimes I like reading it to feel that kind of draw to a... Yeah,
0: kind of, kind of painter a respect of sorts.
2: Yeah, to like, like the, a the original text. Respect, yeah, So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with reading the King James, but I think that it, there's nothing wrong with reading other translations as well. And so you... Let's talk about translations as well what, what's what's y'all's favorite translations to read from anyways
0: Well, i'm a, I'm a csb kind of guy myself christian standard uh, version christian standard bible i've seen csb csv thrown around uh, interchangeably which i think that started out as the hcsb the holman christian standard yeah. uh, i i think that it, it strikes a nice middle ground between readability and like it, it has everything in there that i've seen in versions of the bible that i see as being harder to read because, like, when I when I look at, like, the message, like, I, I've read it on multiple occasions, and I have no problem with it. But, like, if I really want to sit down and meditate, like, I, that that's not the kind of scripture that speaks to me personally. Like, I, I like having some, some good readability there, but I don't, I don't want to be spoon-fed, if that makes any sense. Like, I want to have to work a little bit, yeah. and I, I think it strikes that nice middle ground for me. I used, I used to be big on ESV, but, well, then I discovered the CSV, and I'm like, oh, I like this one better. But I I read all of them. Like, I'm a big fan of having, like, a bunch of different tabs open with the same bit of scripture and, like, 20 different (laughs) translations and just, like, bounce between them. And if I see, like, one thing in one that's not in the other 19, I'm like, oh, what's the deal with that? Like, that's that's something I enjoy doing. Mason, what about you?
1: I like sticking with just, for personal read, the New King James. Oh, really? I've never encountered a a New King James
0: reader before. Tell me, how is life? Like life you
2: see at the him top? in the wild, you see someone in the wild, oh, a new King James reader. How, how's life at the top, Mason? <laughs> He's not top tier, bro.
0: Yeah, He's not a KJVO. Do you hold your Bible with your pinky out? Is that, is <laughs> that, like is that English what you do? Tea. Is that like, is that the, the only, well, I mean, obviously it's not the only version you read, but like, do you have any study habits with other versions of the Bible or do you just kind of stick to New King James?
1: Uh, for the most part, I'll stick. Specifically, just with that, unless, uh, like you said, there's a word that in there that just kind of sticks out, because normally you can tell reading through one version if, uh, if there's just a word that just doesn't seem to fit right. Most of the time, it is like, I won't say a translation issue, but if you go to three or four other different uh versions or translations, you can notice that two of them will be the same and one of them will be different, or even in some cases, all of them might be a slightly different. And so, I, if I ever catch anything like that, I'll I I'll, I'll like to go to. Uh, I like to look, flip over to ESV just because it's it's probably like you said it's probably one of the most popular around here. If for someone that's not going to do King James, so I like to go to it just to see what a lot of those people are reading to see what they what it says there. Um, I've actually been hearing a lot about how uh, the New American Standard is uh, supposed to be pretty spot on as far as English versions go. So I'll, I'll uh, throw it over there every once in a while.
0: So how how did you land on New King James? Like when when
1: did that become your go-to? Probably right after I started preaching and I started reading more. Oh, do you preach out of it? <gasps> no. Oh <Aww. laughs> lame. No guts. No guts. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean... I obviously wouldn't, just because, like I said, kind of like what Tanner said. It's kind of like the area we're in. Like that, that can be a big stumbling block to a lot of people. And I'm not going to cause unnecessary stumbling blocks. Just like, oh, what is he reading? Because I know sometimes in class, like you talk about, like Sunday school, people can use whatever. And like, I'm all for people trying to use something different. But when you have, you know, four different versions in one of the same classroom and people get confused, I mean, I, that's just unnecessary distractions Mm -hmm. so it's very very well known that people around here in church will bring a king james bible so that's what i'm going to read from but when i'm giving points most of the time like i won't read them i will just have from what i studied and my memorization is going to be more of a current english kind of like the new king james because that's what I, i said that's what i normally just read from for myself um because as I mentioned, I'm not the best reader, so <laughs> so I need something that that can make it a little bit smoother for me. Well, so when it comes to
2: different translations, you have different you have like two different major types of like translations, and you have what you would call a word for word translation. We kind of already made homage to it, but yeah, this is more like a, a more literal uh, translation that you get all the nuances and all the small little details within uh, the text. But if you Always did a word for word translation, like we've already made mention that it would just make it would make any sense, and so that's why you have a lot of the things that need to be worked out a little bit. Um, But then one of the, I guess you go to the other end of the spectrum that you have more of a thought for thought translation, and this translation it translates with a little bit more liberty and the idioms to keep the main message of what that text is trying to relay. And so, like, let me give you an example is with like the Greek idiom uh the greek idiom it says that mary is having it in the belly no one knows i mean I think about it, that's not something you you say but yet in that time era the greek having it in the belly was a way that yeah she's pregnant but no one in 21st century knows what that means and to be honest no one in 1611 knew what that meant in england and so having it in the belly they translated it as in uh mary was found with child and so this is the way that you lose some of these nuances and details, but the thought for thought, it doesn't take every every word literally about literally, but take it more trying to get that message across without crossing the, the bridge of difficult these and thousand does.
0: Yeah. I don't have it written down because I didn't um, go too hard into that area of study, but I do vaguely remember reading about um, if you took like word for word translation from the original Greek uh, when Jesus' crucifixion was taking place, they didn't actually use like the term "pierce" or like driving nails mm-hmm. uh, into the wrists and feet, uh, but instead they used the the phrase "as lions," like that. That was the phrase used to get across the idea of like the the nails being driven in the hands or, or pierce like that. That's that's what was used in place of that. So if you had that word for word, like, and then they like lions, his hands and feet, like what, what, what? <laughs> so yeah. I Definitely, uh, idea for
2: idea is it's good to have, in moderation at the very least. So let's just wrap this conversation up with like we talked about translations and like this can be, and I made mention to it before, is that like the war of languages, and how like even back when they were translating the 1611 King James, is that there was disputes over it, and today we have disputes over which translation is better, and so there's a, a, a christianese theological term that we throw around inerrancy god's word is in, inerrant and this is a core value belief in the christian faith is that god's word is inerrant and this means that it's it's it can never be proved wrong it is true it is faithful it is sovereign it is perfect god's word is, is, is without error so what do we mean by that though because I think this, I believe that God's word is inerrant, and that is a core thing that we, I hold true to, to my faith, to the, the, the theological standing of that, the way that I see Scripture, the way that I view God, that, he is, that there's no error in Him whatsoever. So how in the world is God without error, and Scripture is inerrant, without error, but yet we have hundreds of translations, and translation has went through all these ups and downs and twists and turns from the very beginning. And there's there's disputes over should First John chapter five or seven be in there? Should it not be in there? What in the world is having it in the belly mean? And and all these things like, what do we mean by inerrancy? Well,
0: me personally, I, ha- I I haven't heard that word thrown around a lot. So I mean, what I'm about to say might not like be touching on what you're getting at specifically. But when I hear you talking about inerrancy, like, what does it mean? Uh, that we say that God's word is inerrant. I think that we mean that literally (laughs) pun intended, I guess like God's word is inerrant. So be sure not to look at specific versions of the Bible and be like, that's the inerrant version. Because for one, if you're reading it in English, you're not reading the original text because the original text was not in English. Uh, So while what God says is inerrant, what someone translated might not be you have stuff lost in translation you you have uh, things that made it into one bible that didn't make it into other talking about that uh, that one verse um, in first john like for instance there's the the elohim argument that I like to, to well it's not really an argument it's just a fun fact like the way that scripture was written it's not just that hebrew and greek doesn't translate one to one english cuz i mean that that i mean that's obvious i mean no language is going to just like be one to one compatible with another. There's always going to be like some wordplay that gets lost in. Tra- There's going to be things lost in translation. What what would you say if I told you that the very first verse of the Bible is wrong? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Yeah, that, I mean that's what the original Hebrew says, but God isn't capitalized in the original Hebrew version because they don't use. The word God as we understand it. They use a word called Elohim. And Elohim translates more accurately to a spiritual being. Not God, a spiritual being. If you really want to simplify it, it essentially you could change the first verse of Genesis chapter one to in the beginning, a God created the heavens and the earth. Why is that? Because Moses was being instructed by, by God, like to, to document. The creation of earth because I mean obviously Moses wasn't around for it but the marketing strategy that God had for his people when he was getting uh, Genesis documented was this was going to be taught to a people that had grown up under polytheism it was just understood that like the harvest had had a God the Sun had a God the moon had a God Uh, good fortune had a God. Winter had a. There was a God for everything. It it wasn't comprehensible that a single God could accomplish everything. So the way that Genesis is laid out is it's beautiful. I mean, it's a work of art. You have elements of God, and some of it did make it into Genesis. Not all of it was lost in translation, because I believe at one point it says uh, the wisdom of God or the will of God, something like that, went over the waters. Like it is acknowledged that certain elements of God are so powerful that like. They can almost operate independently like because that's that's the power of God. He's just that great that he can accomplish that stuff. But in the original Hebrew, it really snuck in the idea that this was all the same God. It was like a God created the heavens and the earth. A God put the stars in the sky. A God put um, all of the, the creepy crawlies on the earth. And then it kind of caps it off at the end by saying, oh, yeah, by the way, all those gods? Same God. like <laughs> Getting across that idea of like, listen, the, the, this polytheism that you believe, yeah, sure, we can work with that because God is so awesome. He could do everything that all your many gods thought they could do. He is all of those. He is the God. He is the dominant one that does it all. But it kind of it very art, art, artistically, we'll say, eases that into the minds of a bunch of polytheists.
2: And this is where I think that the inerrancy of God is important is that he meets us where we're at and— we, sh- we shouldn't tie him down to a translation in that sense. Is that what are we to say that God cannot reach people through a King James? What are we to say that God can't reach people through an NIV? And the same thing that God meets us where we're at. God met a polytheistic people where they were at and said, I'm God. I am the God. So that's like a general revelation. It's like, oh, a God made this, a God made that. Oh, a god, this. But guess what? I am the God of a God, and so He's not affirming polytheism. God, when when Moses yeah. is writing that, God's not telling him this is polytheism. But God is writing. God is inspiring Moses to write it to basically reveal, reveal. Himself yeah, in a way that I am it. Yeah, I'm without error.
0: And does that mean that it's wrong that our modern versions of the Bible have a capitalized G God in Genesis one one? No, I wouldn't say so because. The Bible is not being written to a bunch of Americans that are polytheists. I don't. I don't think that anything is lost in that change necessarily. We
2: we have the presupposition that there is a monotheistic religion because that's basically, you know, majority of uh, Westernized culture is a monotheistic culture, and so it would look weird to have a God. Yeah. uh, But yet the translators have decided to put the God uh, in it because I mean. They are taking their presupposition of a monotheistic culture.
0: Yeah, and to re-answer a question you posed earlier in this episode, I don't think that any doctrine is lost with that little change. So, to re-answer the question that you originally asked, so does making that little that little change there in the initial English transcribings of Scripture does that does that mean that God's word is errant there because a G got capitalized? No, because God still created the heavens and the earth. Like that—that that didn't change. That's still true. God still did that, and I think that that logic could be applied to the rest of Scripture. Like th- the essence of Scripture is infallible; it's inerrant. But yeah, translation did make some little kooky twists and turns here and there because
2: men and women are imperfect, but God uses imperfect people. Boom. And God—I mean—and I, mean, I hate—and I hate this. I mean, this sounds uh, very bad, but God can use an imperfect translation. But we say all this because,
0: I mean, the Bible is, I mean, it's a work of art. We've said that a couple times already, but that's not going to become any less true due to us saying it over and over. It is a work of art, and it's a privilege to have it. And I think we kind of kicked off the episode by saying this, so let's, let's I guess, close it out in the same way. It's easy to take Scripture for granted. It's also easy to idolize Scripture. So where, how do you find that middle ground of, like, okay, how do I read the Bible but not, like, worship the words on the page like the Pharisees did in Jesus' time? Like, how do I do that? Well, I think a good place to start is having a conversation like we did today here, discussing, like, wh- what is the Bible? Why is, why is the Bible what it is before us right now? Like, how, how did it get here? and how can we pay our respects to it by, by reading it diligently, by comparing different translations and all that, having having fun going deep into, into study on, like, the original Greek, uh, original Hebrew. I mean, that, that might sound like a mountainous task to some people, but, I mean, this is the kind of study that, like, really helps you get in the weeds, helps you really, I mean, commune, get one-on-one in prayer with God as you go in uh, on these kind of scholarly journeys, if we're being honest. I think it can real reveal a lot to you.
2: Do you think that when Christ comes back our ticket into heaven is a King James-only Bible. I mean,
0: obviously, that's why I keep one But to the question,
2: pocket. But here, seriously, though. When he returns and we reach heaven and stuff like that, will we have Bibles? Will there be a need for Bibles anymore? I don't think so. That and, like, I'd imagine,
0: and I know we're kind of getting into, like, the epilogue of today's episode, but whatever. I think... It's going to be really fun learning all the stuff we got wrong. I think it goes without saying, like, we haven't got it all right. I mean, I don't think any denomination of Christianity is like com- has completely got it right. I mean, no one's going to look at the Bible and be like, all right, this is what it means. Like, we've, we've all got little things here and there wrong. So I wonder if we're going to go there and just be like, dude, the message was the one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mr. Peterson, good job.
0: Uh, but this, this has been a fun study. Uh, it's been the most intense study that I've done since— goodness since i was in school (laughs) like going over the history of scripture so i hope that what we said makes sense i I think it did i I had a lot of fun uh learning as i do every episode but this is this has been cross training we'll we'll see you in another fortnight and until then tanner give us those magic words
2: peace out